Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Beatriz Buake, who is a researcher from the University of Manchester and the founder of the NGO Words Heal the World. Thanks for joining us, Beatriz. Thank you so much for inviting me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about Words Heal the World? So Words Heal the World was, uh, it is an NGO I, I founded in 2018 to equip students with skills and knowledge to challenge online hate speech and tackle different types of extremism. So it is an NGO, through the NGO, I was working with students based in Brazil, the United Kingdom, also Colombia, Argentina, and, and students were developing social media campaigns, producing sh- short uh, documentaries, writing pieces to raise awareness on what each of us can do to challenge hate speech and also tackle racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, for example. And what was it that drew you to this work? I decided to set up the NGO because in 2017, we were like in the peak of that wave of radicalization uh, with ISIS, with Daesh. And I was very worried about the way these terrorist groups were using the internet for recruitment, also using the internet to uh, promote their propaganda. And at the same time that we had some NGOs working to prevent radicalization, I noticed a gap because many of them were not targeting young people. And we know that these terrorist groups, they target young people. So in my perspective, that was a huge gap. We needed to do more with young people. And it was not enough to solely offer workshops, to solely talk to young people, and then in the next day you are not there anymore. I wanted to do something that would really make students feel that they had a purpose, that they were belonging to a larger community that could shape a peaceful society. And that's exactly what I've been trying to do with Words Hill. With Words Hill, students learn some key concepts of international relations, politics, uh, digital communication, and they use these theories in practice. So they use these theories to develop strategies to produce content that will uh, encourage people to use social media responsibly, to use social media to promote peace. 
Uh, you were also involved with a project called Mapping the Far-Right Truth Industry. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what is the far-right truth industry? Yeah, so basically, also again, <laughs> I've been constantly worried about the way these extremist groups uh, have been using digital technologies to promote their ideologies. And I set up this independent network, research network with other uh, scholars from different universities. And the main goal of our network is to identify uh, think tanks, political schools, alternative media outlets that are using these, how can I say, that are using these vehicles that are socially associated with truth to legitimize their racist uh, ideologies. So what, what we call far-right truth industry is exactly this, is the use of these, let's say, institutions that are socially associated with truth in order to legitimize a racist, misogynist, anti-Semitic agenda. And this is something that is going on worldwide. It's not something that is that you can choose a country and say, oh, this is only happening in the US. No, this is happening worldwide. We have been working on this. Right now, we are uh, working on a publication. I already wrote an article, a book chapter that will be out next month. So yeah, that's what we are doing in terms of mapping the far-right truth industry. You've worked with students and young people in Brazil and in other countries. Beatrice, is there a difference in how hate speech manifests in different national contexts or what are the uh, common themes, I suppose? My, my main research is, fo- my, my, my research is focused on conspiracy theories on the use of conspiracy theories to channel channel hate towards a constructed other. And when we think about hate speech, when we think about stigmatizing conspiracy theories, they construct different enemies. These enemies, they can be easily, easily adapted to different contexts. So if we think, for example, uh, of cultural Marxism, which is a conspiracy theory that gained ground in the US in the 90s and has started circulating a lot in the US. You can also find proponents of cultural Marxism in Brazil. You can also find proponents of cultural Marxism in the UK, for example, is also gaining ground right now in the UK. And Barreras um, in the US, it was very, very focused on Marxists and also Jews. In Brazil, for example, is mainly mainly target on left-leaning individuals. They don't use a lot this word Marxist. They use more the left, like whatever is the left. So if I, I am aligned with uh, left-leaning politics, they will instantly see me <laughs> as a threat, as a proponent of cultural Marxism. So this is the kind of... Uh, enemy that they see, for, inst- for instance, in Brazil. In the US, is a bit different. In the US, the anti-Semitic tone of cultural Marxism is very strong. So Marxists are, are enemies just as Jews are enemies. And there, 
through this conspiracy theory, they are perceived to be individuals who infiltrated universities, uh, federal agencies, Hollywood industry, uh, mainstream media to indoctrinate people to accept and promote progressive policies that stand totally in opposition to what is perceived to be uh, what are perceived to be Christian values. So that is this difference. And something that I would just like to highlight here when it comes to, to the use of conspiracy theories to incite hate is that these narratives, they are very, very powerful when it comes to enabling people to position themselves as if they were like a special individuals and construct another who is supposed to be like the enemy, who is supposed to be the, the, the source of all the problems that the, the other person was, was facing. So, yeah, I think this is something that uh, is also adaptable to different contexts. What's, what's the relationship between the online or digital expressions of alt-right ideologies and the offline or in real life expressions? The outright can be understood as a digital political phenomenon that brings together international groups and individuals around the shared common belief that white identity is under attack. So differently from other uh, far-right uh, movements or far-right actors, the outright does not gravitate around a center of command. The outright does not display a unified political doctrine the outright cannot be confined to a particular uh, state, for example. At least two things are very important to have in mind when we talk about the far right. So firstly, it is an essentially conspiratorial phenomenon. So conspiracy theories such as the white genocide that says that the white race has been exterminated or the Great Replacement that claims that powerful liberal elites have deliberately orchestrated the replacement of white and Western individuals, operate as conduits for this belief that white identity is under attack. And the second important thing is that the Internet has facilitated the circulation of such beliefs, facilitating even more the transnational nature of the alt-right. If we look at the Great Replacement, for example, it is a conspiracy theory that was popularized in France first, but it adapted to the American context. While the Great Replacement in the US transmits anxieties with regards to Latin people, Latinos are considered to be the ones who have supposedly stolen the privileges of American white, white American people, in Europe, Muslim, Muslims are constituted as the main enemies. So the enemy may change, but the conspiracy theory remains operating as a coping mechanism that places white people as the victims of a supposed malicious plan, especially designed to remove their privileges. Why, why have white people been supposedly under attack? Why do they, why some of white people share this belief? So from their perspective, they think, they feel that they, fa they face an existential threat because individuals from other races, from other races, feminists, pro-multicultural elites, and very often Jews, supposedly envy what they claim to be their natural right to conquer, to dominate, as if it was like their natural right to do such a thing. 
So the whole quest of the alt-right is about power in multiple levels. It seeks to consolidate the supremacy of white race, the dominance of white men over women, and the power of white individuals over others through the production of truths. And here, when it comes especially to truths, is that this usage of both online and offline spaces acquires a special relevance. So even though the alt-right operates mainly online, a number of organizations have been set up to promote its ideas in a more consistent way. Additionally, many of them have strategically served to imbue conspiracy theories with true value, either under the form of news or scientific knowledge. So today, we have think tanks, publishing houses, pseudo-academic journals, alternative media outlets, NGOs committed to an agenda that openly conveys the belief that white identity is under attack and that something has to be done to supposedly steal back the power that they perceive to be taken and enjoyed by non-white individuals. Offline and online expressions of outright ideas are complementary. Someone may have their first contact with the outright, for example, on YouTube through a documentary. And then from that move, from that uh, first encounter with outright ideas on the internet, the person may feel compelled to look for more information about those ideas on books. And this person can easily find these books on the internet, which in my view, is very worrisome. Some people might say, oh, these discourses, I still uh, remain in the, in the margins, on the margins of the public sphere. So they are not available on mainstream platforms. And this, unfortunately, is not the case. You can still find racist, uh, xenophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic, uh, misogynist ideas promoted by the outright on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Google, Bing, Yahoo, WordPress, all of them have been used to normalize and legitimize the, the, the sort of shameless racism pushed by the outright. It was once said that uh, anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools, but I'm wondering what function does anti-Semitism uh, perform or what 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 function does contemporary anti-Semitism perform? Okay, so unfortunately, anti-Semitism is still very prominent in our society. The belief that white identity is under attack presupposes the existence of an enemy, an evil force, a supposed evil force that is attacking white identity. And if we look at the conspiracy theories that convey this belief in the outright, the deep state, cultural Marxism, white genocide, and great replacement, we will see that there is a a hierarchy among the supposed enemies. So Jews and Marxists are frequently conceived to be the most dangerous enemies because they are supposedly the mastermind of the perceived malicious plans against white identity. They are considered to be like the most intelligent and powerful players in this sort of uh, battle that they 
envisage. They have supposedly infiltrated federal agencies, universities, mainstream media, cinema industry, and so, and so forth. Immigrants, black people, women, Muslims, Latin people, are constituted as a secondary type of enemy, insofar they are perceived to work for Jews and Marxists. So in a number of videos that was, I was examined for my research, in the videos, in the comments, in the posts on websites, I found this narrative that the Black Lives Matter, for example, is a movement created by Jews and Marxists with the intent to remove the rights of white people and seize power. So that is the sort of hierarchy when it comes to enemies constituted by white supremacists by the outright. In an article that I wrote to an ebook that will be launched next month uh, by an Italian university, I show how this narrative has been embraced and disseminated under the guise of truth in educational material can produce it by a grassroots organization based in England. So it's not solely, when we, when we think about the way anti-Semitism has been promoted and legitimized, we're not solely talking about uh, individuals like Alex Jones or, I don't know, this Peep the Frog memes. No, we are talking about individuals who are really performing uh, the role of the intellectual. We're talking about think tanks. We are talking about pseudo-academic journals that are using this social position to normalize and legitimize anti-Semitism. And this is, uh, this is deeply problematic. How large or influential are these truth industries? And how, how do you distinguish them from you know cottage propaganda, people who are just doing it for free? In my current uh, research, I investigated how and why outright conspiracy theories have been legitimized in the online space. And consequently, I took 15 YouTube and BitChute videos containing authoritative performance of these conspiracy theories as a primary source of investigation. I observed how the same videos were shared across Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, forums, and websites. And 42% of the 952 public posts in English reproducing these videos as truth, they, they were emphasizing the truth value imbued in this narrative. So they were not even trying to debunk the conspiracy theories. They were really like engaging with the conspiracies as truth. And some posts were made by alternative media outlets, publishing houses, political associations, and they were not restricted to a particular country. Google, Bing, and Yahoo recommended websites that were promoting the conspiracy theory to uh, Spanish, Japanese, Chinese, and Russian audiences. On Twitter, in which many users give public access to their location, four countries promoted all the four conspiracy theories examined by me that have been constructed as truth. So the deep state, cultural Marxism, uh, great replacement, white genocide. So four countries, they were reproducing these conspiracy theories as, as truth. And these four countries on Twitter were US, Canada, England, and Australia. So it is difficult to know how large and influential is the sort of outright uh, truth industry. What we do know at this stage is that 
it has produced content in various ways using various formats and that it's not a centralized type of industry. It is a really transnational industry that in certain cases, it is based, for instance, uh, in the U.S., but is inviting a Croatian intellectual to talk in an event organized by it uh, in London, for example. So it is. it has this level of uh, outreach. And I, I really believe that it really deserves uh, more attention. And that is the reason why like, I am working on a postdoc proposal to start mapping and uh, delving really into this industry in the future. But at this stage, what I can guarantee to you is that this is a very uh, active, diverse, and international conspiratorial truth industry committed to a racist and sexist agenda. And Beatrice, what do you think makes um, audiences or communities vulnerable to this kind of propaganda? And do you have ideas about what might be done to encourage resistance to this propaganda? The belief is disseminated by the alt-right that white identity is under attack animates racist and sexist anxieties that have been around for so, so long. This is not something that have been around now. It's something that has been promoted and perpetuated for centuries. So, moreover, this belief has been transmitted by conspiracy theories presented not only by conspiracy theories like Alex Jones, but also by individuals who manage to perform very well what I call the intellectual ritual. The construction of the arguments, the use of academic credentials, the way this content is filmed, induce the public to consume the conspiracy theory as truth. So these strategies are not quite new, but what is new is the fact that we live in a society in which we are constantly encouraged to be responsible for our own success, to do our own research, to be whoever we want to be. The narrative offered uh, by, the out- by outright conspiracy theories is very appealing for individuals who feel detached from society, who instead of reflecting on global inequalities, for example, are compelled by the opportunity to project their resentment towards a other and constitute themselves as someone special someone who supposedly discovers the truth about the source of their anxieties. Which anxieties are these? Are anxieties that have been perpetuated for centuries. So they feel anxious because someone is supposedly enjoying the privileges that under bracket should be on the hands of white people. The removal of accounts spreading outright ideas can help it, but we already know that is not enough. Educational strategies to challenge racism, sexism, and misogyny may raise awareness on how harmful they can be, but it will also won't be enough. I align myself with scholars who see racism and patriarchy as deeply rooted in the collective unconscious, and as such, we need a whole society effort. We need a whole structure effort to change the effective dynamics and erase 
negative representations attributed to black people, Jews, immigrants, and women. The challenge is much, much bigger than we once thought, and I'm afraid there is no easy way of dealing with it. It is like an inflamed wound. You can't put a plaster, you can clean it, but it won't heal unless you discover the source of the problem. And the source of the problem is how far, how deep-rooted in our society is uh, racism and sexism are. So, unfortunately, there is really no easy way of, of dealing with these, of dealing with this problem. And even if we think, for example, to conclude this, I'll just give you an example. If you think of truth, who are the people who have been uh, associated with truth? Who are the greatest philosophers of our times? They are all white men. So even the concept of truth, even the idea of truth, has been constructed on the hands of white men. So the outright, as some scholars have already pointed out, is not an accident, is not something that, oh, we could not anticipate this, this is really shocking. Unfortunately, it is just like a mirror of how racist and sexist our society is. Uh, especially in the wake of the pandemic, we've seen the far right and the alt right and you know associated movements appropriating ideas of liberty and and freedom. Could you speak to how and why they do that, and what forms of community do they offer? Again, I can only speak for the alt right. So, in the alt right, white identity is equated with Western civilization, and to both of them, freedom is one of the key values alongside progress and even Christianity. So if Christianity, if we focus on the U.S. So when you think of freedom, you usually associate to, you associate to the West or you associate to, to, to white people, to white identity. So it is one of the signifiers that have been like encompassed by the outright. So freedom is one of the things that outrighters feel that they have been supposedly taken from them. In many of the videos I examined, for example, I read comments and posts complaining that white people can can no longer walk freely in the streets, that they have that they do have uh, they do not have privacy even in their homes, that even their freedom to think has been supposedly hijacked by powerful liberal elites that have supposedly indoctrinated society to accept and promote multiculturalism and progressive policies. So during the pandemic. Uh, we had like this movement saying that their freedoms have been hijacked, uh, that the authoritarian government were imposing and forcing them to, to take the vaccine. So it is part of this frame used by our writers and also far writers that put them, that, that let them articulate themselves as if they were like, the part of people, as if they were the people who is the victim of a supposed authoritarian regime. As a signifier of white identity in Western civilization, freedom is perceived to be under attack on multiple fronts. So black people and immigrants have supposedly enjoyed more freedom than white people. Women have enjoyed more freedom than white men supposedly on their on their uh, mindset. So 
they from their perspective they see that they feel that women can now freely move from one position to another in a company that some companies have even reinforced the importance of having women on their boards and they see these as problematic non-white people have also supposedly enjoyed the freedom of reformulating curriculums producing truths that expose the trauma inflicted by centuries of white supremacist practices and policies and this is also this this is actually one of the main narratives of cultural marxist proponents that the power to produce truths has been taken uh, from white people and is now has now been used to push multicultural ideas to promote progressive policies so it is all these narratives they are deeply intertwined in the outright and it's very interesting to observe how the truths conveyed by the outright are perceived to be somehow liberating at the same time that they make individuals feel special because they have supposedly discovered something that others do not know while conveyed as truth outright conspiracy theories are also used as instruments of power that allow individuals to enjoy the feeling that through their words by attacking their supposed enemies they are allegedly reclaiming their domin- dominant position they are liberating themselves from the supposed uh imposed power uh of the liberal elites so these affective dynamics behind the supposed truths conveyed by the outright are very important because it is precisely the factor that keeps individuals engaged with these conspiracy theories engaged with these discourses they want to know more not only because they enjoy missing the whole truth about the other they want to know more also because the truths offered by the outright make them feel that they are one step closer to occupy again in their minds the dominant position so this this whole thing this whole quest about freedom is ultimately about dominance is about seizing power aside from i guess uh, propaganda and uh, in a, in a sense poisoning public discourse about political matters what forms of political ge- legitimation does the alt right seek and how does it pursue those goals Yeah I think this question is very very important because since its emergency many of outright proponents they openly expressed the desire to engage in a battle for hearts and minds to change people's world views about equality the outright is not primarily concerned about partisan politics so if its main concern is about people's world views It comes with no surprise that it would make an attempt to enact its own regime of truth even if its supposed truths are essentially conspiratorial. So this claim would be unthinkable in a society in which trust in institutions is not as eroded as we have today. So today we live in a society in which people do not trust do not have the same trust in content produced by mainstream media in the knowledge produced by universities in the information provided by by the government and this is really really problematic because it gives uh, other individuals a space to produce their own truths to start setting up institutions and saying that oh 
the narrative produced by the government, the narrative produced by mainstream media is fake news. Don't trust them. They are corrupted. And then they start producing their own, their own really uh, truths within brackets. Okay. So interestingly, even though many authors observe the metapolitical vocation of the outright, so they acknowledge that the outright was not a partisan, was not involved in partisan politics. And they also no, these authors also noticed the conspiratorial essence of the outright. Practically no one envisaged the possibility that it would start exercising power through its own conspiratorial truths. And that is precisely my main theoretical contribution. With the internet, it became much easier to constitute oneself as an authoritative site of information. It became very easy uh, to set up a website uh, saying that uh, it is uh, positioning itself as an alternative media outlet or as a think tank. And these websites can produce alternative news. They can host podcasts about cultural Marxism. They can promote books about the supposed demise of white identity or even giving the public the opportunity to submit papers, papers on the brackets, about the white genocide. So without being backed up by an institution, individuals today can give public lectures, give interviews. Uh, they can really like speak the so-called legitimate language. And given this distrust in official institutions, the lack of affiliation can be perceived as an additional legitimating fact. So the very fact that they are not affiliated to an university or to CNN, for example, operates may operate as a legitimation factor. Conspiracy theories have always mimicked con uh, conventional scholarship, but the internet has undoubtedly expanded their possibilities with this respect. Additionally, now they can also openly interact with the audience and count on online participation to create and nurture an audience for their supposed truths. So this is precisely what is occurring right now with the outright. So we have conspiracy theories conveying the belief that white identity is under attack. And these conspiracy theories have been legitimized through authoritative performance, through intellectuals, through alternative media outlets, and visibility. And so far, the more individuals engage with this discourse, the more it will be recommended by platforms getting even more exposure. Overall, our present model of capitalism, effective capitalism, has played a crucial role in the self-reproductive and self-legitimizing nature of the outright. While encouraging individuals to constitute their identities and by promoting them to engage in collaborative authorship, it has allowed a racist and misogynist creature of the internet to enact its own politics of conspiratorial, on the brackets, truths. Beatrice, just finally, what's the role of critical security studies in examining these ideologies and movements? And what particular insights does it provide or, or promise to provide? Okay, so critical security studies can play a massive role in helping us understand digital political phenomena like the alt-right. Moreover, it can help us anticipate some risks, giving authorities more time to act to prevent violent attacks 
and also seek novel forms of fostering social cohesion. Overall, I think that critical security studies is still trying to understand the threats posed by white supremacism, because different from what occurred with Daesh, for example, we no longer have a well-defined non-state actor that is behind terrorist attacks. We have different, multiple individuals and groups assessing white supremacist content, and it became very difficult to predict attacks. The outright suggests the need of uh, suggests the need of more interdisciplinary research and the need of breaking some paradigms, like, for instance, the one that associates power with institutions and charismatic leaders, which are absent in the outright, and the one that sees objective truth as exempt from effects. The outright has managed to exercise power, despite the absence of a set of command or charismatic leader, And it has also managed to invest conspiracy theories with truth value, despite the high affective charge, affective charge displayed by these discourses. So these are two concomitant things that have a number of impacts and they can open a number of questions that need to be addressed by critical security studies. Some of these questions are, for example, What are the main supposed truths that have been used as a justification for white supremacist attacks? In the Buffalo attack, for example, the manifesto released by the attacker uh, echoed not only the great replacement white genocide, but also cultural Marxism. So we had three conspiracy theories there. And the manifesto had uh, a Q&A session, for example, in which the attacker was asking some questions for himself. And there was this question, what motivated you to, to attack, uh, to, to engage with violence? And he said, it was truth. After conducting my research, it was truth who motivated me. So what are these truths uh, that are circulating on the internet and they're also available on books? To what extent bookshops and digital platforms have given exposure to such truths? What kind of legislation or community policies can be adopted to restrain the advance of truths? So these are only some of the questions that can be further explored by critical security studies, for example. Well, that's all we've got time for on the radio, but we will have a few more questions on the podcast, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash Pasaran. And if people want to follow Beatriz online, you can find her personal website at BeatrizBuake.com or WordsHillTheWorld.com. Thanks for joining us, Beatriz. Thank you so much. It was great. All right, folks. We'll see you next week.
Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Wick Gari, and more. The Forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The Forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narm. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narm. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research a 3CR supporter.